So 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after have they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So far, let us pray and ask for the Lord's spirit among us. Father in heaven, we come before you and We pray for an illumination of the word this morning. An illumination that doesn't come from the preacher, but that comes from the spirit. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to have tender hearts to receive that, to hear the word and to receive it with joy and to bear much fruit. For therein you are glorified. Give me wisdom and please um, give me uh, faithfulness to your word. Give us all discernment to hear it faithfully and to hold fast to that which is true. In Jesus' great name, we pray these things. Amen. So this morning, I have three points I want to draw out of our text. And our text is verses 20 to 22, where it opens up for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein. So the three points this morning are a worse end, a wider knowledge, and a woeful saying. A worse end, a wider knowledge, And a woeful saying. So, so far we have examined the character of these false teachers and we've spent time looking at them. Last time we looked at the impact they had on others and on the church. And this time we're going to look at the state of the false teachers. Where they really are. And now we first have to ask ourselves as we look at verse 20 when it says, For after... If after they have escaped the pollutions, who is the they that is being referred to here? Because in verse 19, we had two groups being talked about. If you look at verse 19, it says, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are such and so. So they promising them. So who is the they of verse 20? There's two parties here. They are the false teachers and the them are the victims the objects of the false teachers. And so I think I agree with many commentators who argue that verse 20 is a continuation not of the victims, but of the false teachers. Because the false teachers throughout this passage are the subjects of the verse. And so we will say that they are the servants of corruption that are identified so clearly in verse 19. They themselves are the servants of corruption. And so by opening up here with the word for in verse 20, he's explaining or further expounding on the state and the severity of the bondage that we saw last time that these false teachers are in. They are overcome and they are entangled again in this bondage. And notice the status that uh, 
Peter uses here with respect to these false teachers, these professing Christians. Look at the words carefully in this verse. It talks about having escaped the pollutions of the world. And notice through what? Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you've been tracking with us throughout this letter, you'd remember that at the beginning of 2 Peter, Peter opens up with those precise words. Go back to verses 2 to 4 here with me, please. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge, there's the same word, of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge, there's the knowledge again, of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may be partakers of the divine nature. And then look here, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. And so people that embrace this knowledge of Jesus Christ have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And that lust, if you look at chapter 2, verse 10, gets picked up again and gets blended with our pollutions. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. The Greek word for uncleanness has the same cognate root as the word pollutions. You could say the, the lusts of pollutions. And so these teachers had visibly and audibly forsaken the old ways, their pollutions. And they had joined the church through that knowledge of Jesus Christ. And yet... We find them entangling themselves again back in their old ways, in the moral recklessness that they once knew. We must remember this morning the filth that Christ saves us from and the holiness that he calls us to. Dear people, let us not be trite about following hard after holiness, pressing on to know our God more, pressing on that we don't have any stains of filth on our clothing, as it were. Let us not tread flippantly among the temple of God, the people of God, the covenant people. Perhaps there's areas in your life that you've become cavalier in. Perhaps your heart is becoming fertile soil for things like jealousy or greed. Perhaps you're always comparing yourself to a, better, to a best friend or comparing yourself to another family, comparing yourself to another Christian. And you're constantly doing that. You're comparing your business to somebody else's business and envy and jealousy is creeping in. But perhaps this pollution that comes upon our hearts is seen in other ways and it's about how we approach the word of God. You do devotions in the morning. You read the Bible in your family worship. That's wonderful if you do. If you said, yes, I do that. But do you approach the word of God in faith? Or do you just approach it in unbelief? As a duty? As something I just do? It's, it's something I check off? God says this in Isaiah 66 verse 2. But to this man will I look. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. And that trembles at my word. These false teachers did not tremble at the word of God anymore. It was trite. It was light. 
Now coming back to our text when it says they've escaped the knowledge through the uh, escaped the pollution through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have to remember these these professors really liked the idea of a savior, right? Because they knew they had a, a lot of stains in their life. And so they they liked a savior, but they did not like a Lord. In fact, Peter unmistakably links the terms Lord and Savior, using the full title of Jesus, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The title of Lord and Savior, that combination, I looked it up in the Greek, is only used eight times in the New Testament. Half of those are in Second Peter. And I believe it is because precisely the Lordship of Christ was challenged and was discarded by these teachers. They spurned it. They wanted a Savior without a commitment. They wanted all the the blessings without the cost. Who is Christ to you? Who is Christ to me? Those are questions we must ask ourselves. You know, when we looked at the beginning of the letter, and as we just read it, it, you, you notice maybe that the word knowledge keeps getting repeated, this knowledge. And when we looked at that, we saw that this wasn't just the regular word gnosis in the Greek. This is the word epignosis. Epignosis, again, is the true acknowledgement, the recognition. This isn't just something here, but it's something that we saw went into the heart and sealed something. A recognition of the truth. And so it seems these false teachers had epignosis, same word here used in verse 20, of Christ Jesus. Did you know that 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 22 have become the bedrock of Arminian theology, denying the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? They appeal to this passage because they say, how can the epignosis be in the false teachers? Now we must remember that in verse 19, these teachers are called, look what it says, slaves of corruption. They are slaves of corruption. So somehow Peter is labeling them by what they are, and yet he's borrowing the terms of epignosis, this knowledge about what they've embraced. But he knows what they really are, slaves of corruption. But obviously the way they had embraced Christianity was very real, was very outward and very, um, very uh, sacrificial in the beginning. But Peter says, they're again entangled in their old ways. They're like an animal. That's what that word means, entangled. It's like an animal caught in a trap, unable to let go. It reminded me of the Apostle Paul in his last letter that he ever wrote, 2 Timothy, he simply says these words, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. We must tremble at the thought of being trapped in a love affair with this fleeting age. Do we warn one another about that? Do we take it seriously? Leo the Great, writing in 400 to 461, somewhere in that time, he says this, We cannot fathom the depths of God's mercies towards us. Yet we must take 
care not to be ensnared again by the devil's traps and become entangled once more in the very errors which we have renounced. For the ancient enemy does not stop laying down traps everywhere and doing what it takes to corrupt the faith of believers. He's right. This is you. You're here this morning. It's great. But your heart's not here. Your mind is elsewhere. It's consumed in your job. It's consumed on that outing you have planned. The shopping day is coming up. Did you come this morning as a ready hearer of the word of God? Do you prepare for the Lord's day? Or do you come regularly so tired, so worn out by the way you've spent your previous week, especially your evening before, that you regularly fall asleep during the sermon? Are you more eager to check your social media and your phone this morning than you are to hear the word of the living God? The Puritan William Gurnall said this. He says, it is dangerous, you know, to fall asleep with a candle during uh, sleeping uh, during our side when we fall asleep, uh, by our side. Some have been so burned in their beds. And he says this, but more dangerous to sleep while the candle of the word is shining so near to us. How do we come? To our Lord's days. These false teachers. They didn't care about the word. They cared about what they could plan. Afterwards. The parties they could have. The filthy lucre they could gain. Is the infinitely holy God. Worthy. Of leftover attention. What a thought. That God would even receive our worship, my worship, a maggot, a sinner. And we come here to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let us in our love for Jesus Christ be so kindled and so warmed in our affection that our worship of him is true this morning. And Peter warns us, he says, their latter end is worse than the beginning. It's worse, he says, to embrace Christianity only to leave it again. Some have suggested that what Peter might mean in this text is simply this, that once you've said you're a Christian, you leave the faith and you, come, you won't sorry, want to come back so quickly. You won't have an ear for it anymore. You've seen it, been there, done that, and that's all Peter means. It's just harder to win people who grew up in the church back again. And, and we can think of people like that. We maybe have family members, right? We raise them in the faith. And they abandoned it. They left it. Is that who Peter's talking about? I don't think so. These are people, remember, who had epignosis, a strong embrace of the faith. They were baptized. They did all these things. They may be taught in Sunday school classes. And they left it. And Peter's not just saying it's worse in the sense that it'll be harder to win them back. That's not what he says. Oh, no. He says their end is much, much worse than that. In fact, I think Peter appropriates here in the phrase when he says uh, their latter end is worse with them than the beginning. The Greek there is used only one other time in the same construct. And the Lord Jesus said this. 
It's in a different context, but the maxim, the truism is the same. Jesus said this, Matthew 12, When the unclean spirit has gone forth out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return to my house from whence I came out, and when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And Jesus says this, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Let those words echo in your mind this morning. In Peter's view, one should not come to Christ if one does not expect to stay. You and I are bombarded with reasons to abandon the faith. Perhaps it's the constant barrage of what's coming up on your phone and your television, the pornography, the filth that's on the screens. For others, it's the fear of man. Maybe, maybe you've had thoughts like this. What will happen to my kids if I stick out too much? If we're too Christian? What are they going to do with my kids? And the fear of man is driving you away from following God's ways. What about my job if I don't play along with what they ask me to do? What if I don't laugh with the jokes? What if I don't join in fudging the numbers? What about it? Perhaps it's the continual drip of difficult relationships. Maybe you're in one of these. Oh, I've had enough. God's call of sacrifice is too much for me. I should tear a strip off of this guy. He deserves for me to walk out on him. When God calls us to covenant, the devil calls us to consider breaking covenant. Oh, the toxic attraction of things like comfort. We'll do anything to be comfortable. We'll we'll look any which way to establish almost a wall of comfort around us when Jesus called us to the cross of suffering. I was reading Joel Beakey this week, and he said, let us repent of every known sin. Which means heart examination. Looking in which sins are, are conniving at me. Which sins are, is the devil using to bait me in? Let us not entertain any thoughts of compromise. Let us instead, let us instead feed on the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. What can compare to the love of Jesus, to the infinite God that he draws us to? Who can fathom such wisdom when the wisdom of the world is pulling you? Draw your heart to the infinite wisdom that is seen in the word of God. What can compare to such pristine holiness as that of God? Not one iota, not an ounce of sin in the blazing presence of God Almighty. That is attractive. So how dare we even consider to turn the grace of God into some temporary treat as these false teachers do. Brings me to the second point. Verse 21, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. 
Verse 21 explains why the latter end is worse. Now, it's interesting, as you look at the text, you're like, okay, so he just said the latter end is worse than the beginning. And what you would expect when you'd explain that is, well, they will suffer worse in hell or something like that. But he doesn't say that, does he? In fact, he goes in a completely different way. He says, for it better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Look again at that word known. He is turning this whole thing on the word epignosin. Knowledge, had known, have known. They knew the way of righteousness. They knew of the Lord Jesus and the obedience, the way he calls us to, the way of holiness. And then it says, he, they knew the holy commandment. Now, if you look at that holy commandment, it's interesting because we have to see the word that follows it. In the Greek, it's actually front-loaded, delivered, paradosis. It's a, it's a unique word. It's, it's a word that means, and it's stock language for a set of beliefs, a tradition that was delivered, handed over to those who would receive it. It was the apostolic tradition. One commentator calls it this. It is the sacred, delivered tradition. The gospel and the call that comes with the gospel, the holy commandment, packaged together. And it's interesting, isn't it? It calls it a commandment. Do we see the gospel as a commandment? Well, the Bible does. In fact, the Apostle Paul at Areopagus, when he's talking to these heathens, these philosophers, these high guys, these high and mighty guys, he says, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. It's a command. And it comes with a cost. It comes with a call. Jude 3, the sister twin epistle of 2 Peter, actually calls it this, the faith. Notice the same words, the faith. The, front-loading this, which was once paradosis, delivered to the saints. It is the call to turn from sin and to Christ. And look what they do. Look at verse 21. Instead of turning to Christ, they turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. That's what conversion is, right? To convert is to turn directions. And these guys went this way, and they've turned from and are going the other way. So who are these apostates? These are people who with a willful, knowing apprehension of the truths of God reject it they reject the faith they reject the cost they reject the call and they reject the community and so notice peter doesn't say that they will have a greater degree of punishment he doesn't say that instead he states they have a greater knowledge than most and the greater knowledge implies a greater punishment. Think about this. The more severe punishment will be meted out to the one who knows more. Is that biblical? You better believe it's biblical. Jesus said so much, John. Luke 12, 47 and 48. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. 
For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed, there's the same word, much, of him they will ask the more. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about that knowledge and what Jesus is saying. Have you considered this morning, as you sit here, the knowledge of the holy gospel and what that means? That God would sanctify sinners through the death of his only holy son into the blazing presence of his radiant glory. Do you think then that that God will take that knowledge and drawing people towards him, will he then be mocked by those who know about the gospel and pretend to embrace his son only to reject him? If you were going to hang up one phrase this morning that you will walk away from, remember this. The knowledge of Jesus is the knowledge of the Holy One. The knowledge of Jesus is the knowledge of the Holy One. The holiness of Christ is that which which elevates him infinitely above creation and sets him apart over sinful creation. And therefore, it made him able to save sinners to himself. Now, perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you've fallen hard in the faith. Perhaps the weeds have grown over a once tender heart to the word of God. Perhaps you're falling into sins that you thought you'd once beaten and they're coming back with a vengeance. And you fear this morning you're sitting here an apostate. That's apostasis, one who falls from. Know this, backsliding is not apostasy. Backsliding is a season of increasing sin and a decreasing holiness. Backsliding is a season when spiritual ground is lost. Not apostasy. Apostasy is a wholesale turning away. It is a continual, habitual giving oneself over back to the world. It's not a season. It's a complete falling. They don't care. Where apostates don't care, a backslider will hunger to be restored to Christ. They long again for the warm embrace of Jesus Christ. You see, for the true believer, Christ is everything. He is the answer to my backsliding. Christ is the balm to heal my weary and wounded soul. It is Christ who is the one who justifies me, the backslider, and his worth never depreciates, and it is never minimalized for the repentant sinner. Christ's gracious provision is altogether the sufficiency of the backslider. Because let's face it, you look at your life, you look at your week, we've done things that are terrible in the eyes of our holy God. And what grace that he pulls us, that he stoops, and that he bled for sinners like you and I. And so if you are that backslider this morning that has gone through a season of backsliding, will you not run wounded? Weary, broken, afresh to Jesus Christ, who loved his enemies. 
The one who seeks those who ran from him. The one who said, go and compel them to in. Go into the highways. Go into the hedges. Compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Christ pursues sinners. He has sought us to be with him. And so appeal this morning, if that is you, with expectancy to the word of God. Appeal God's word back to him. Do you pray his word to him? Thinking of Psalm 17, 5. Hold up my goings in thy paths that my footsteps slip not. Hold me up, O God. That's God's word. In the end... The backslider will press on in the fight. He will not fall. But he will not press on. You and I cannot press on by looking inward, by looking downward. No, we must look upward to God. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heavens and earth. And so the same psalm says this. As for me, I will behold, look again, look afresh at thy righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake. With thy likeness. Last point, point three, a woeful saying. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that washed to her wallowing in the mire. Peter here will deepen. Why the latter end is worse by citing two proverbs. But notice in the text, it's called the true proverb. It's one, one message. Two proverbs are packaging one singular message here. They make one point. In fact, if you look at the book of Proverbs, you'll often see that two proverbs come together to bring across one message. The first proverb here, though, is from Proverbs 26, verse 11. As the dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. The second one, we can't find it in the Bible. It was most likely from pagan origins, but the Jews had heard of it. And the reason the Jews wouldn't have thought this one up themselves is because they didn't keep pigs. Now, dogs, first of all, whatever we say about dogs right now, In biblical times, they were scavengers, filthy, disgusting, roaming animals. You did not feed Rex dog food. You kicked Rex out. Eating anything rotting and filthy, these dogs will chew this down, gnaw on a bone, and vomit it up. And I have seen this on the farm, and their tongue comes out. And they take it all back in. They're disgusting. And so in ancient culture, you would actually insult your enemies and call them dogs. Speaking of eternity, in the book of Revelation, the only animal that gets brought up for the cursed is dogs. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. The first Label for without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Pigs, similarly, are filthy. 
They can be washed only to instantly bathe right back in the mire. The historian Philip Schaff says this, Pigs were forbidden to be eaten, not only by the Jews, but also among the Arabs, the Phoenicians, and other Eastern nations. To the priests of Egypt, too, swine's flesh was the most hateful of all meats. So the entire subculture had some sort of a stigma about these animals. Both animals are hauled in here as an association of the profane, of the unclean, of the unholy, of the impure. And they are a picture of the apostate. They are a picture of anyone who is outside of Jesus Christ. Take note of what it says in the text. It is happened according to the proverb. The Greek word, it is happened, is in the perfect tense, which means an abiding state. They are in a state of being dogs and swine. Oh, for a season. For a season, these false teachers were in the pews. For a season, they joined the church. They had gone, undergone outward reformation. Nothing internal, though. And that is why the rotten cancer of sin remains terminal for them. As dogs have puked up what's uncomfortable in them, right? That's why they vomited out. Out of their stomachs, so many of these people have professed Christ because sin was uncomfortable to them and they vomited it out by confessing their sins, confessing Jesus Christ. They throw it up in a fit of conviction. And just like swine who who go cleansing themselves in the waters of baptism, as it were, but when the ache is gone, when the conviction of sin is gone, and when the baptism is complete, so is all their resolve for Jesus Christ. And they return to their old ways. The interesting thing is, When the dog was eating the carcass before, it wasn't pretty. But now, it's mixed with all the disgusting stomach acids and everything else in them. It's even worse. It's acidic. It's grosser. Worse. Perhaps you know people that have done this. They vomited out sins for a season. They went through the waters of baptism and... Often they become hardened to the gospel and plunge thus the more eagerly back into their old ways. They go hard the other way. The Puritan John Trapp speaks of a certain man, Harding was his name. He became a once powerful preacher against popery. He preached against popery only to soak up the vomit again, to drink it in, and to then persecute Christians. You remember how I said earlier on that this set of verses seems to militate against the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? It actually shows the opposite, especially in this last verse, because it shows us this. True saints persevere, but false professors go back because they are not changed in nature. That's the whole point. Dogs stay dogs, swine stay swine. And that's why they will always go back. And we are reminded this morning, you are reminded, I am reminded that sitting in the pews, getting baptized, making a profession of faith is not the thing that ensures salvation. The mark of genuine Christianity is perseverance in the faith, going on into righteousness by looking unto Jesus. 
To which animal would you say the Christian is compared in the Bible? Sheep. They're not the smartest animal. But Jesus did say this about them. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And no man is able to pluck them out of my hands. This whole concept of the need of a changed nature reminds us of our utter dependence in evangel- on God in evangelism. Evangelism to our children, evangelism to our neighbors, evangelism to neighbors, friends, aunts and uncles. Maybe you've wondered, you've, you've talked, I talked this week with a gentleman, and, and you wonder, why don't they believe it? It's so clear, it's so obvious. We can bring up all kinds of evidences and talk about all kinds of things that are so patently clear. And we're just, we're puzzled. It's because their nature hasn't changed. Shouldn't we instead, instead of marveling at the fact that they don't receive it, we should marvel at the fact that any receive it. That God mercifully gives to anyone a new nature. That's where we should be shocked. The 18th century preacher Samuel Pierce, he wrote this. Oh, how abundantly thankful then ought those to be whom he has called by divine grace to the knowledge of himself. What an unspeakable mercy it is that he has called me by divine grace, that he has distinguished me in such a peculiar manner as to be taken into his service, adopted into his family, and made an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Do you think Samuel Pierce thought this idea of the need of God to do a supernatural change would hold back his evangelism? Precisely the opposite. Samuel Pierce was instrumental in the founding of the Baptist Missionary Society where William Carey, one of his best friends, would go out to India. And Pierce wanted to follow him. He prayed hard. He learned Bengali. He he sought to go. But the Missionary Society said, you are better suited to serve us here back in England. So he didn't go. Now, how do you think Pierce responded when his heart yearned for the people of of India and he knew they needed to be transformed? What does he say? Get this. He says, full of hope, he says, and expectation I was when I wrote to you last, to William Carey, that I should be honored with a mission to the poor heathen and be an instrument of establishing the empire of my dear Lord in India. And then he says these words that should shock us, that should propel us onward, and that should convict us. He says this, I must submit now to stand still and see the salvation of God. It's not about the missionary. It's not about you and me. Stand still. Be faithful. Be faithful. But stand still and be amazed that God changes hearts and lives. Samuel Pierce would die at the age of 33 and one of his best friends, William Ward, that would labor with William Carey in the mission field says this, I have seen more of God in him than in any other person I know. Have you submitted the salvation of your children, of your siblings, of your neighbors and your co-workers, not into your hands, not into your smarts, 
but into the humble, humbly into the hands of the Almighty God. You might be here this morning longing for a life more wholly devoted to God, but there are many sins to vomit out yet, so much filth that needs washing. Oh, how we know that. A dog in the end, we saw, licks up the vomit he spews out. But the one who truly beholds Christ by faith progressively hates the taste of vomit, even in their mouth, more and more. And progressively, more and more, they taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Because when the Lord is good, When we cast our eyes to him, not at our failures, which we tend to do, and we become extremely introspective, don't we? But when we cast our eyes on Christ, sins of discouragement are dwarfed by the loveliness of Christ. Sins of impatience are mortified by knowing Christ's patience with me. Sins of selfishness are shattered by beholding Christ who gave himself for a dog like me. Why does God love me at all? I am still so broken, so sinful, so prone to wander, and yet he loves his children and has drawn them to himself. Why does he love me? Why does he love us, believer? Why? Why at all when we are sinners and we keep retching up more of this stuff? It is Christ he sees in us. It is Christ that God loves in us. We are united by faith to his son. And when God looks at us, he looks through his son and he sees us united to him. And therefore, how do we respond to this? To this great salvation. We give glory to God for such a great salvation. All glory be to the Son for a life given. All glory be to the Spirit that transformed me and you, believer, to be made like into His image. And day by day we are conformed more as we behold Jesus Christ. I pray... My heart yearns that you and I this morning would leave Christians with our hearts bursting at the seams with thankfulness to God. Don't you thrill at the thought, don't you thrill at the thought that soon you will see your dear Savior face to face. Now, believers, we love God with transformed hearts, new natures, that still give room to sin. On that day, the day he returns, we will love God with an unsinning heart. The moment you enter into heaven's doors, you will be forever finished with sins. And that's why John says it the way he says it. When he shall appear, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. If you don't know Christ this morning, how must you go to him? You must come to him with the empty hand of faith, receiving that precious jewel with nothing to offer as a beggar, but coming, trusting, hoping, 
receiving. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God in heaven, we thank you for such a marvelous salvation that you would draw sinners, transform sinners, give them new hearts, and make their hearts beat after you. Father, I thank you for saving me. I thank you for drawing me into this body of believers. I thank you for the people you have brought here this morning. I pray, Lord, that they would know you more. In Jesus' name. Amen.